Good morning. I'm Justin, the discipleship pastor. I know some of you I haven't gotten to meet yet, so I just want to welcome you. Glad that you're here. If this is your first time with us, love for you to grab one of these orange cards in the seat back in front of you, uh, just to let us know you're here to begin a conversation. I know the buckets have passed, but you can drop these in the boxes on your way out or out at Connection Central as well. Um, well, happy Father's Day to those of the fathers in the room. It's great to be with you guys and. I know uh, for me, this is uh, my second Father's Day, but kind of took on a new meaning because we just uh, finalized our adoption of our son. And so just an exciting, exciting time. And I think, uh, um, you know, for me, it's just a good reminder, you know, of both the challenge, I think, of fatherhood, because there's days you wonder, what did I get myself into? But other days where you just go, man, this is uh, one of the best decisions, you know, that I ever made, though, too. And so uh, just I'm glad for all of you who are, who are here. I hope you got to enjoy all the uh, cars and motorcycles and everything out front. Um, I'm going to be continuing on our series today called Church Work. And um, as I was preparing for it, it reminded me of a, a trip that I went on um, uh, back in 2002 with a group of, of other college students. I was in college at the time, went to a Christian university, and so we were going on a mission trip over to Germany. And those of you who have been to other countries, you know, anytime you go to a foreign country, uh, one thing becomes apparent. Um, there's certain values, certain things that uh, they believe or they practice or they do that we don't. And you often see just the contrast, you know, both good things and bad things about your own culture, about their culture, you know, it gives you just perspective. And um, there's lots of those things that I saw when we were there. Um, but as, as we were there, our whole approach going in was to try and share about our culture um, as Americans, but really to go beyond just talking about America and to talk about the college we went to and to use that as a segue to talk about faith. Uh, being at a Christian university, that's kind of a uh, more unique thing. There's not really much of that uh, that I know of in Germany. And so we're hoping, hey, this would give us opportunities as we're in these public high schools, talking to the English classes, just getting to share about that. But it was funny, too, because as we were there, it also made me realize some things about um, just our culture that I didn't realize was important uh, to me. Uh, those of you who have been to Europe, you can appreciate this, this fact. When you're there, you realize how much as Americans you appreciate ice in your drinks. I mean, if you've been there, you realize, hey, it's a good day if you get like two cubes uh, in your drink when you're in Europe, that it's a very American kind of thing. Um, and I just thought, you know, that's, that's pretty uh, a funny uh, thing about our culture that you don't always realize and you don't always see um, until you go to another one. But as we were there, you know, there's so many cultural differences that I saw. But the one that struck me the most was the difference that uh, those under 30 saw the church in Germany uh, and, and saw faith as being about. And what their perspective was versus ours uh, being in the same kind of age group at the time in, in our early 20s. Uh, but just how we viewed our faith and Christianity and the church so differently. Um, and for them, we had lots of conversations with high school and college students. And what became apparent very quickly is the way they viewed it is they saw the church as being um, kind of an old person's religion. You know, something that their parents or their grandparents believed in or attended, uh, but not really something they saw was relevant to their lives and didn't really see any reason of why they would want to go to church or be a part of the church. They just saw it as kind of a dead and irrelevant. And it was tragic to see that, but what, it, uh, what struck me the most about that and, and, and where I thought about it because of the series we're on is at some point along the way in Germany, they failed to grasp what the work of the church was all about. That at its very core, it boils down to two simple things of sharing your faith, telling others about Jesus, and then helping them grow 
uh, closer to Christ as well. At some point, they dropped the baton. And that faith didn't get passed to the next generation. And so now you go there, and in lots of places in Europe, you see these beautiful churches that are empty or that have tiny little congregations that are meeting there. Um, And it's just so sad that the church failed at some point to pass that baton on. And so in this series, we're talking all about how the work of the church, again, is about outreach, about sharing our faith, but also about discipleship, about growing closer to Christ, helping others grow closer to Christ. And this is something often we can view and think about, okay, the paid professionals, that's their job to do those things. It's the missionary out in the field, or it's the pastor's job. But really what we're talking about in this series, is this is something we all as the church have to engage in. It's your job just as much as it's my job to be the church, to engage in this work of sharing our faith, of pouring our faith into the next generation, of helping people grow closer to Christ. And so last week, Brent began this series, and we're going to dive back into 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you want to turn there. Um, but as he dove into this series, really what he talked about is how uh, doing this work is hard. And in that passage, the first image Paul talks about is the image of a soldier who um, uh, uh, has to endure hardship, difficulty, has to suffer, but they do it willingly because of the mission, because they know that they're accomplishing something important. They know this is something that may be hard. They may have to endure tough stuff, but you know what? It's worth it in the end. And really that that was the, the first thing Brent was talking about last week and about how as the church we need to adopt that same mindset. So today we're going to continue on in this passage and really we're going to talk about the image of an athlete and what would it look like for us as the church to adopt this mindset, this uh, lifestyle of an athlete when it comes to engaging in church work, when it comes to engaging in these two tasks of reaching others and of growing in our faith and helping others grow in their faith as well. And so 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, let's uh, pick up there and read what it says. You then, my child, be strengthened in, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. And so at the end there, you see this image of an athlete. Uh, An athlete isn't crowned unless they compete according to the rules. And really what that's starting to get at um, in this passage, and I'll I'll explain this in just a second, is how the the first mindset, the first uh, characteristic, I guess, if we're going to have that mindset of an athlete is we need to dedicate ourselves daily to this task of being the church, of doing church work, as I talked about that. Um, And if you notice, he said, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And likely what he's getting at is the rules of training. In the city of Corinth, where Paul went many times, they would have these uh, games every two years. Uh, They were kind of like the mini Olympics. I mean, they were still a big deal. You still had thousands and thousands of people go there. Still a big uh, um, kind of, of, uh, I guess big to-do for everybody, I mean, because you get everyone from all over the empire going to it. But for, in order for the athletes to compete, they had to abide, especially by one, one rule. Uh, before they competed, they had to come in and they had to swear an oath before the statue of Zeus. And the oath they had to swear was that they had competed, uh, or not that they competed, they had trained rigorously for 10 months leading up to this. If they couldn't swear that oath that they had done that, if they couldn't uh, complete that rule, 
they would be disqualified and they wouldn't be allowed to compete, that that was one of the requirements for them to be able to compete. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions this same idea uh, in chapter 9 when he says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. And then notice this, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So the whole idea is an athlete exercising self-control. It's all about training, all about discipline. Uh, there's certain things, you know, you used to do, but now that you're an athlete, now that you're training, now that you're trying to become the best, you no longer do. You discipline yourself. You restrict yourself. You make it a daily habit to focus all your energy, all your uh, attention to this one task at hand. And really, that's the mindset that we're talking about here as Christians that we need to adopt. Uh, let me read to you a little excerpt uh, from a few years ago, and it was talking about Olympians. Everything that they go to, to to train, to prepare, to get ready for the actual competition, because I don't think we always realize everything that goes into it, how it really is a, a, something they must dedicate themselves to. And so this is what uh, part of the article said. It said, it's not just that most Olympians are born with a certain set of physiological gifts, although that's a big part of it. It's also their commitment to the sport, and perhaps most important, the way they train. People don't know the process which athletes undertake in their individual sports to reach the Olympic Games. You get there by sticking it out. There are a lot of people that try and give up. In fact, as they talked with uh, coaches and trainers, uh, both, both groups of people said, it's common for athletes to invest four to eight years training in a sport before making an Olympic team. When it comes to running, it may take just that long to develop the aerobic base necessary to compete as a world-class athlete. And so with all that in mind, it, it closed with this idea. It said, many Olympic athletes plan out their training schedules annually and up to four years in advance to make sure they reach specific performance goals. While their plans may not include exact details of how many repetitions they should complete on a Tuesday in February, they do designate periods of rest and intense workouts. And I just thought it was striking to kind of capture that mindset of an athlete and to think, you know, do I approach my faith, this work as being the church with that same kind of intensity, that same sense of intentionality, or am I just kind of going and hoping things work out? I mean, it's one thing to make uh, uh, sharing your faith with others or uh, passing on your faith to others or growing in your faith to go, yeah, that's important to me. And that's a priority in my life. It's another thing to say, okay, I'm going to do that and then figure out how to fit everything else in. I mean, as an athlete, they're not thinking, how do I train? They're going, that's the central piece. We'll figure out these other things that go around it as a result. That it's a, a daily thing that I'm going to engage in and be a part of. And so for your faith, think about how intentional are you to, to plan this out, to think about how you're going to grow, to think about how you're going to share your faith. Is that something you've even considered? And let me just give you um, a couple of practical ideas, things of how you could make this something you dedicate yourself to on a daily basis. And the first is just to think, you know, am I growing? Because it's hard to pass on to others. As Paul talked about here, you know, he's entrusted Timothy. Uh, he's poured in what Jesus said, who Jesus is, all these teachings to Timothy. So Timothy can pass that on to others, who can pass it on to others. But if you haven't um, uh, been spending the time to grow, to learn, to be able to pass on these things, then really um, it's going to be a challenge. And so just to begin with, are you spending time every day growing closer to God? 
I mean, a simple, simple test is to go, am I investing at least 1% of my time every day to read the scriptures and to, to pray, to talk to God? 1% of your time, that's 15 minutes a day if you were to look at 24 hours. So you spend at least 15 minutes building that habit into your day to say, hey, I'm going to spend at least that amount of time. And if you're not sure where to start, that's one reason why we put this summer study together as just an eight-week way to get started, to spend some time every single day with God, reading uh, the Word and learning more about who He is, uh, learning more about Christ, what He's done. Um, And so I just encourage you, if you don't know where to start, grab that just for eight weeks. Begin this journey of spending time every single day. The second one, though, is to think, are you investing time sharing your faith? And as a first being Father's Day, I mean, think as a father, as parents, or even as grandparents, what are you doing to pour into your kids? What are you doing to teach them about God, to point them to God? Is there anything intentionally you're doing about that? I mean, that might be talking about the weekends and what are you learning? Uh, What are they learning as they're in the kids or the youth programs? Uh, But to just go, is that part of our normal conversation? Is there some sort of normal way we're talking about faith or integrating faith into our household? Or am I just hoping they catch this? And really, I think some of the fruit, some of the exciting times when you do that is uh, like first service. We had a, a dad getting to baptize his teenage daughter. And knowing them, I know they've done a good job pointing their kids to Christ, pouring into them, sharing their faith with them. And so as a result, you get to experience that fruit. I mean, as a dad, I think that's one of the, the most exciting things if you're able to be a part of that. But again, to think, what, what kind of a plan, what kind of intentionality do you have to share your faith with others? Maybe it's with your neighbors. We talked in January, if you were here, about how we should be building bridges with our neighbors, getting to know them, uh, hearing their stories, you know, their backgrounds, where are they coming from, seeing are there needs, are there things we can be praying for. And then um, uh, when the time's right to share our story and to share our faith with them uh, when the time is right. But do you even have a plan or are you investing any time on a regular basis to build those bridges? with neighbors or coworkers or those uh, non-believers who are near you. And so thinking about how dedicated are you daily to do this and to maybe think about what's maybe a next step for me. So that's that first one. Second thing is this mindset of an athlete means we eliminate anything hindering our progress. That it means if there's anything standing in our way, anything slowing us down, anything that's keeping us from becoming who God wants us to be, that we get rid of that. And that's what Hebrews talks about. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. And it's interesting in this passage because you see the obvious one that I think we would all say is, yeah, we need to get rid of any sin because that's going to slow us down. That's going to hinder us. That's going to hold us back. But notice, too, it just talks about laying aside every weight which I think is getting at just the distractions, the things that in and of themselves may not be bad things, but they're slowing you down. They're preventing you or keeping you from growing closer to Christ. Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians, if you remember, he said this, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. I mean, think about this idea, run that you may obtain it. No one enters a race, do they, thinking, you know, I hope I get last place. I mean, no one trains and competes and does the hard work and then thinks, you know, I hope they're giving out participant ribbons. I got this spot on my wall. I want to put it. I'm going to be so proud of this. So when people come over, I can go, hey, check out my participant ribbon up here. No one aims at that, right? If you're going to put in the hard work, if you're going to train, if you're going to compete, 
You want to get a medal? You want to win first place? You want to do your best to try and, try and get some sort of prize, some sort of uh, place in the race in that sense. And so that's that mindset that you're willing to go to, to any length to try and compete. And so as Christians thinking, you know, to what extent am I willing to get rid of things that are slowing me down, that are stopping me, preventing me from growing uh, like God would want me to grow? And in the world of athletics, you think about all the bizarre things, and some of them aren't as bizarre, but I mean, many of them are bizarre things people are willing to do to get that second faster on their time or that fraction of a second faster. I think of the kind of kind of normal one is uh, in high school, you always knew the, the guys who were swimmers because they had no body hair. They'd shave it all off, and often they were bald. And there was a reason, right? Because that little bit of drag you get from that hair, that could be the difference between first place and second place. So you're willing to make that sacrifice of uh, getting rid of all that hair that you have because you want to compete to win. You want to get that leg up. Uh, in some of the Olympics, if, if you remember a few years ago, they started wearing those uh, compression suits, which I know for the men in the room, you were glad like I was because you didn't have to see Speedos anymore. They at least were covering themselves, but they had these suits on. The suits were designed to give some buoyancy, to compress them down, and to help uh, reduce again the drag. And if you remember, when they started wearing them, they started breaking record after record after record because they were already good, but it just gave them that little bit of a leg up, that little bit of an improvement to help them take a second or two seconds off of their times and to just improve. Uh, I remember in the, I think it was the Beijing Olympics, watching it. My wife's a huge fan of the Olympics, and we were watching it, and they're showing all the swimmers kind of getting ready, you know, getting in their little routines to warm up. And I just remember noticing something really bizarre. On a number of the swimmers, they had all these like welts or bruises all over their body. Uh, these circular ones. I don't know if anybody else noticed those, but it was really bizarre. And I just thought, you know, what happened to them? Did they fall down the stairs last night or, you know, get in a fight between uh, uh, meets when they were competing? You know, what happened? I mean, they were so strange, but it was this thing called cupping where they'd warm up this little glass container, put it on the skin, and as it cooled, it created suction. And the whole idea was it'd draw blood to the surface, it'd break capillaries, supposedly it'd help uh, people recover faster uh, from uh, injuries or just from soreness and help with some of the pain. I mean, it was really kind of bizarre when you saw people with that, but some people swore by it and thought this is the best thing. And even though they looked ridiculous, they were willing to do it. I read of one athlete, a marathon runner, um, her name was Naoko Takahashi, and in the 2000 Olympics, she set a world record for the women's marathon. A year later, she set another world record at the Berlin Marathon. And they asked her, you know, what's your secret? You know, what are you doing differently than everybody else? Because you seem to just keep getting better and better. And it was interesting because she said, oh, the, my uh, main thing that's different is there's a special protein shake that I drink. And so you're going, okay, well, what's in the drink? You know, what's so special about this? So obviously, you know, it's got protein in it. So it's a protein shake. Uh, but she said, what I also add to it is vomit from the larva of giant hornets. And you just think, come on, at some point you've got to draw the line. But she's going, this is part of my routine. This helps me to improve. And even though it sounds gross and I would never want to try that for her, she's going, it's worth it because it gives me that leg up. I'm just willing to do that. One thing I did come across that I thought, I could, I could get behind this, I could do this, was in Australia. And I mean, Australia, like here, it gets hot. And so if you're, if you're a runner, you're training, um, you want to figure out, you know, how do I get a leg up? And so what they found is runners who were training in hot weather, if they downed a slushy, they ran 19% faster than just drinking cold water. 
So if you love your slushy, you know, now you have a scientific reason to go, hey, this helps me, okay? It helps me compete at a higher level as a result of this as well. But you just think, I mean, some of these are bizarre. There was other ones I came across. But athletes are willing to do whatever it takes to cut things out, to restrict themselves, to put bizarre things in their bodies because they think this is going to help me get one leg up, get a little bit better, get a little bit faster than everyone else. And so as Christians, again, to adopt that mindset of, of what's slowing me down, what's hindering me, what do I maybe need to change or eliminate to, to uh, start doing a better job, sharing my faith with others or growing in my faith. And I know for me, I thought of two things, and maybe they'll resonate with you, that I think sometimes have, have hindered my faith and hindered me from sharing my faith with others. And the first was this, is just sometimes it just feels like it's so busy. You know, you're just kind of going nonstop. You just feel like day after day, you're just trying to get through the day, let alone think about, you know, two days, three days, four days later. Um, but I know when uh, you have uh, kids who are involved in all kinds of activities, it just compounds, right? Because you're running around, taking them to different sports fields or different activities or different school events. And it's just tough. And you may think, you know, I'd love to uh, pour myself into my neighbors and to develop those relationships, but I don't feel like I have time to do that. Or I'd love to start pouring into my kids more, but I just feel like we're always racing around, always doing things. And so I want you to just think about, it's summer, some of those commitments I know have stopped for you. And so going into the fall, before you just say yes, signing your kid up for this sport or this activity, or before you say yes to this commitment, to ask yourself a, a couple questions I've found helpful. Uh, first is this. If I say yes to this commitment, what am I saying no to? Or another way to think about it is if I, if I said no to this commitment, what could I say yes to instead? And it's that whole idea of trade-offs. We don't always realize because we're saying yes to a good thing that we're also saying no to something else. Be it time with your spouse, be it time with God, be it time with your kids or with other people from the church. I mean, there's always a trade-off. Anytime you say yes and commit yourself to one thing, you can't do another. But the other question I found helpful was to zoom out and to just ask you know, five months or five years from now, would I still say yes to this commitment? Would I feel like there was value in this commitment? Or would I feel like that was kind of a waste of time? That this didn't really help me grow or didn't really help others grow closer to Jesus? Uh, that really it was maybe just a distraction along the way rather than something that was beneficial long term? And so to think about that as you're busy with lots of things, to go, okay, is it the right things? But the other one that I think happens with a lot is the distraction of screens. I mean, you think about it with phones nowadays, uh, TVs, tablets, computers. I mean, we're always connected. And in and of itself, this isn't a bad thing. I mean, on my phone, I can pull up, I mean, any translation pretty much in the world for the Bible, just on my phone. I can pull up resources to help me grow in my faith. I can watch different studies. There's all kinds of biblical tools available on a phone, tablet, computer. I mean, these things can be positive, good things. And yet, how many of you are like me, where there's been times you get home and it's been a long day and you're just thinking, you know what, I'm going to just check Facebook for a minute or, you know, I want to get to level 200 on Candy Crush or, you know, whatever it might be. And you're thinking, I'll just spend a few minutes doing this, you know, you're doing it. And then you realize, wow, it's been half an hour. It's been 45 minutes, you know, it's been an hour. I mean, time just flies by and you go, where did the time go? Um, because just that distraction, you know, pulls you away. Or I know with, with TV, sometimes that can happen. I mean, nowadays we have seasons we can just binge watch, right? I know in, in, um, uh, before I was married, my roommate had every season of a, of a show called 24. Some of you remember that. And it's so literally, you know, every episode is one hour of 24 hours, um, hence the clever name. And so uh, I thought, you know, this is supposed to be a really good show. Let me just try and watch, you know, an episode or two. So I think it was on a Friday night. I thought, I'll just watch one. You know, you watch one, you're like, 
Okay, I got to know what happens next. It's still not that late. I'll just watch one more. Watch one more. Well, I don't got to get up early tomorrow, so I'll just watch one more. Before you realize it, I mean, I think it was either Saturday night or Sunday. Okay, I watched the whole season. And I just thought, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to start the next season because what a waste. I could have been doing so many other things with that time. And that's the, the trade-off, is it can be a distraction from your faith. It may take you away from being able to do the things that you really know you should be doing. I mean, I know there's been times for my wife and I where uh, at the end of the day, you know, we're just spent. She's a stay-at-home mom, and uh, our boy's great, but he's just always on the go. So by the time evening comes and he's in bed, we're just both, okay, let's relax, catch our breath for a little bit. But sometimes because of screens, then we don't spend that time connecting with each other sometimes praying with each other, sometimes uh, either of us reading the Bible, even though we're thinking about that, want that, because we get distracted. And we go, well, you know, I'll just read this for a little bit on my screen or watch this for a little bit, and before we know it, it's time. Time for bed. I'll have to wait, try that tomorrow, come back to that. And so what's slowing you down? What's distracting you? They may not be bad things, but they may be things that, again, become bad things because of how it's pulling you away from engaging this work of sharing your faith and pouring into others. Third thing I want to talk about is be intentional about who you train with. And this is a, a kind of an obvious one, but people that you spend your time with, they can speed you up or slow you down. They can make you better or they can make you worse. And the book of Proverbs uh, mentions the same idea when it says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And as parents, I think we remember this, you know, with our kids, we're leery sometimes with certain friends because we're thinking, okay, I don't want them rubbing off on, on my kid. And so we realize, hey, there's that relationship, who you spend your time with, who you're closest in proximity to, those people are going to rub off on you uh, for good or for bad. But yet that same holds true for us as adults too. The people I'm spending time with that I'm regularly around, they're going to uh, uh, have a positive impact on my life or they're going to negatively impact me. They're going to push me closer to Christ or pull me away from him. In the world of athletics, they've seen this time and time again. Uh, first, they saw it with cycling, where you would do two time trials, you know, where you're just racing against the clock. They'd set out. They'd both get certain times. Then you'd have them compete against each other. And inevitably, their time would be faster racing against each other than if they just did it on their own. Uh, with runners, they saw this same thing take place, whether it's because you're competitive and you're thinking, hey, I'm going to beat you, you know, even if you're, you know, going to exhaust me and I'm going to throw up at the end of this, I'm going to beat you, okay, or I'm going to keep up with you. But you just run harder and go faster as you're competing with someone else or as you're training alongside someone else as well. And yet in the church, that same thing should be happening. We should be pushing each other, training with each other to be moving in the same direction. Hebrews says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so notice the reminder. He says in the middle there, don't neglect to meet together. Make it a priority. Make it a habit to regularly connect with other believers who are growing closer to Christ. And as you gather, encourage and push each other to grow in loving others and in good works. And so think about you know, do you have a community you're regularly gathering with? You know, not just in a large group like here on the weekend, but in a smaller group of one, two, three, you know, could be six, eight, ten people, but a smaller group that you're regularly connecting with. I mean, that's why at the church we offer uh, small groups as one way to connect with others who are moving in that same direction, where you can be pushing them, they can be pushing you to grow closer to Christ, where you can also be asking each other, hey, 
Have you been getting to know your neighbor? Are you uh, building that relationship with them? Are you sharing Christ maybe with that family member that uh, uh, you know doesn't know Jesus? But we can be pushing each other in that regard. And if you don't have a group of people around you, again, I just point to our summer study. This is a tool you can use that asks you a few questions. If you have the courage to connect with a couple people and go, hey, let's do this together. I know between services, somebody uh, uh, who travels a lot for work um, and uh, they're on the road a bunch, they said, hey, maybe you could grab some of these and do it with some people you're on the road with, um, that you could do this together with them, with two or three people. And in here, it'll ask you three questions as you meet every week. What's God teaching you? What, what are you going to do about it? And how can I help? And just think about that fact. If you were to meet regularly with people and ask those three questions, what's God teaching you? If you were to say, well, I, I don't know. I'm not really spending any time reading the scripture. We'll start there. Okay, start reading the scripture, praying, asking God to speak to you. If God's speaking to you, teaching you things, and the second question is, well, what are you going to do about it? Because if it's just stopping up here, that's not doing you any good. You've got to put it into action in some way. It's going to manifest itself in some way. And then the third one is, well, how can I help? How can I encourage you? How can I push you forward? How can I help you become more like Christ or to become a more godly father or husband? Uh, whatever that may look like for you. And so again, who are those people you're regularly connecting with? Sometimes I know it's not people that are in the same season or stage of life as you, but sometimes you need to seek someone out who's further down the road than you. You know, maybe you're uh, work in the world of business. You own your own business. And um, you're thinking, you know, how does my faith and my business kind of come together? And you've got to seek someone out that you feel like, you know, they do a great job connecting their faith with their business. I need to seek them out and, and learn from them. They're further along than me. And so I need to seek out that spiritual mentor to show me what that's like. Or maybe as a father, you got, I don't know what it looks like to lead my kids or my wife. And so maybe you need to seek someone out. But whether it's seeking out somebody like that or it's seeking out a group of people to grow alongside of, it takes a risk and it takes courage because the easy thing is to just keep going, to keep doing what you're doing. But the challenging thing is to go, you know what? Hey, would you be willing to meet with me for these eight weeks as we do this study together? Would you be willing to meet with me for breakfast? I'd love to pick your brain on, you know, what you did with your kids or what you wish you would have done with your kids to help pour in your faith to them. But it, but it takes that courage for all of us to take that step. And the last thing I want to point out is, uh, in this passage is to focus on the reward. And I'm not going to get a lot into this because Greg's going to uh, uh, wrap up our series next week by talking about this. But in 1 Corinthians 9, notice again what Paul said. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable and he's creating this contrast. You know, in the Corinthian games, they'd get this perishable wreath, you know, uh, made out of the, the um, I always forget what plant, but basically it's made out of a plant. So you just think it's not going to be uh, very long before it just totally fades, totally withers, totally turns brown. And they're competing. They're training months and months and months on end for this competition just to get this little wreath. And yet he's saying you are going to receive an eternal an imperishable wreath. And so that should motivate you in the present. That should uh, cause you to endure difficulties, hardships. And again, Greg's going to get into this more, but I just want to mention Galatians 6, 9. It says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And the challenge is that last part, if we don't give up. I mean, it can be easy at times, can it, if you're trying to pass your faith on to your kids, trying to teach them, point them to Christ. And then you get seasons in parenting where you just feel like, 
I'm hitting a wall. I don't think anything's getting through to them. You know, sometimes it's those teenage years where you just wonder, are they getting any of this? They're not listening to me. They're maybe not making the right decisions that I agree with. And yet it's that challenge. Are you going to keep pouring into them, keep investing time with them, keep pointing them back to Jesus, even if they make the wrong decisions, using that as moments to go, that's why I'm trying to help you avoid that heartache or that um, uh, consequence as a result of not doing the things that God would have for you. If it's sharing your faith with that family member, that coworker that you just feel like, I don't know if they're getting it. I don't know if anything is happening with them. Don't give up. Don't write them off. Keep praying for them. Keep being faithful and sharing your faith with them because you never know what God may be doing behind the scenes. You never know if they're just around the corner from committing their life to Christ. And it just takes our faithfulness to continue to share uh, our faith with others, continue to pour into others, continue to help others uh, grow. And so just that reminder, don't give up. Keep doing it. God sees what you're doing. He's faithful and in his timing, he'll reward it and he'll do something in it. I want to um, close our time just by talking about nine, nine men uh, from the University of Washington. They went there in the 1930s, and um, these were just ordinary guys. These were guys that uh, grew up in working-class families. They were sons of dairy farmers, of uh, uh, guys who worked in the, um, I was going to say timber fields, but I don't think that's the right term. But, you know, they're lumberjacks doing that kind of thing, people that were just from little no-name towns. Um, for one reason or another, these nine men decided to go to the University of Washington. And if you remember in the 30s, I mean, that's when you had the Great Depression, uh, so much of the economy and uh, so many industries were just in shambles. And so during that time, one of the uh, big distractions for people and the thing that they enjoyed either watching or listening to on the radio was rowing. It'd be kind of like uh, football or uh, basketball today. That's how popular it was. I mean, everybody wanted to uh, watch that or listen to that. And so these nine guys, for one reason or another, they decided to enroll at the University of Washington. And they decided, even though it's going to be a grueling first year, I'm going to try out for the rowing team. And the coach would put you through all kinds of uh, difficulties just to see what you're made out of, see if you can still do well in school, see if you can be still uh, uh, healthy overall um, as, a, as a person. And so each of these nine guys, uh, they started at different times uh, and were on different initial squads to race, um, but they all were um, uh, doing well. They were putting in the time day after day to train, to do the hard work. And in Washington, if you've ever been there, you know, there's times like now where it's just beautiful. It's a great time of year to be outside. And they would train those days. But they would also train the days where it's snowing out, it's 30 degrees out, and yet they had to get out on the lake with the wind chill, uh, uh, the wind blowing and the wind chill going on and keep training, keep doing the hard work day after day after day. And these guys competed against all kinds of colleges, all kinds of teams, but little did they know that their coach had a bigger prize in mind. Their coach actually had his sights set on the 1936 Olympics. And he decided, you know, I want to find the right combination of guys to make it. And I think I can, I, can get, I can do that with the guys that I have right now. And so over the course of a couple years, he tried all kinds of combinations of rowers because he was trying to find that right rhythm. Uh, they call it the swing in, uh, in rowing, where these guys are just moving as one person, where they're just working in tandem with one another. And so he tried all kinds of combinations. Finally, he found the right combination of nine guys, sophomores, juniors, seniors. And so he had his sights set again on the Olympics, but he had a big impediment first. We got to beat 
all the other schools to be able to actually get a place, earn a place in the Olympics. And so first they had to beat two, the two-time Olympic champion, Berkeley. And so you have to defeat this huge foe right off the bat, and yet they totally decimate them in that race and beat them. They go to the East Coast, where all the powerhouse schools were for rowing at the time, and one by one, they beat them. And they earn their spot in the uh, 36 Olympics in Berlin. But going over on their uh, boat ride from New York over to Berlin, or over to uh, Germany and then to Berlin, uh, one of their key guys, Don Hume, just got totally ill. And at the time, these nine guys are the nine guys you got. So whether one of them just feels terrible and is super sick or not, you're going to have to compete, just those nine guys. And so already they're kind of uh, uh, have that against them before they have their first heat. Along with just the guys there, they haven't been to these big cities and seen all the different distractions and things to pull them aside. And so they're engaging in all kinds of things. And yet their first heat comes against England. And even though they, they did not perform well, it was enough to beat England, to get through that first heat. They have several other races they get through, and finally they get to the finals. And again, this is a big deal. So you had 75,000 people gathered to watch this final race. And as the people are there, the people begin to chant. They just begin to chant, Deutschland, Deutschland, Deutschland. Because in Germany, I mean, obviously. Uh, so they're just cheering. They're just, you just imagine this deafening sound of the crowd cheering and, and shouting this. And the Americans have a few things already going against them. First off, they're in the worst lane possible for the race. Secondly, because the crowd is so loud, the uh, uh, who's that's the guy who's steering the boat, and he's setting the tempo for everybody else. He doesn't even see or hear that the race has started, so right out of the gate, they're behind, and they got time to make up. And then Don Hume is that guy just in front of him who all the other eight guys are watching and, and setting the same tempo as that guy. And so Don Hume, again, he feels terrible. It's as if he's kind of in this trance. He's just kind of rowing, but it's not a super quick pace. He's just going, going, going. Finally, about halfway through the race, it's as if Don Hume wakes up and he just starts setting this quick tempo that the guys in the boat match. And you can just see from this midway point on, the boat just takes off and starts picking up some pace and slowly passes one boat after another boat after another boat. They get to the final 1,000 meters and they still have a couple boats ahead of them, but they just keep inching along, keep pressing forward, keep making up this lost ground. Uh, and then finally, in the last 50 to 100 meters, uh, they slowly pass Italy, who had been leading the entire race, and win by about a quarter length uh, of their boat. And if you were to look at the Olympics at the beginning, no one would have expected this team from this uh, Pacific Northwest, from the University of Washington, would have ever competed for a medal, let alone got first place. I mean, these guys, if you were to ask them when they started their career in rowing, their journey there, none of them would have expected to compete in the Olympics, let alone to win a gold, gold medal. And yet their coach knew something great was in them and knew they, were pos they, were, they, were, they had the potential to do this. And it just made me think of the church and the potential that lies in the church here locally in our church, but also in the church as a whole, that as we engage individually in this task, this hard work day after day after day of doing church work, of being faithful to share our faith with others, of pouring out our faith to our kids, of helping others grow closer to Christ, and of us spending the time to grow closer to Christ, that as we do that day after day after day, and as we collectively move in unison together, as we're pushing each other to grow closer to Christ, pushing each other to share our faith, 
I mean, only God knows what could, what could be accomplished through us. And it just makes me think of the early church. I mean, a group of, of uh, a dozen guys who were just a ragtag band. I mean, they were really nobodies if you were to look at them in that context. And yet they truly were convinced Jesus is the Son of God, that he is who he says he is, and we're going to follow him, even if it means we have to give our lives away as a result. They were faithful to do that. And so they uh, shared who Jesus was with anyone and everyone, and they passed on their faith from one generation to the next to the next. They taught to others what Jesus said, what he did, what the uh, Old Testament was all about, that they were faithful in that call. And you just see today the result of that faithfulness, this worldwide movement called the church that just started with this band. And it wasn't anything special about them, but it was the God that they were following that did something incredible through them. And I think it's an encouragement to us as the church first to just make that decision to go, I'm going to daily dedicate myself to this task of sharing my faith. As God gives me opportunities, I'm going to be faithful to share it, to take that risk. I'm going to do that at home with my kids. I'm going to share Christ with them. I'm going to point them to him and invest in them. And I'm also going to do that uh, when it comes to just helping others grow closer to Christ and growing on my own closer to Christ. And who knows as a result what God may do as collectively we engage in this church work together. And so I want to just close with a word of prayer for, for all, all of you. God, uh, in our room today, I know there's people at all different places, some that just are discouraged as they've been trying to be faithful to you to share their faith and pass it on with their kids and with others and just feel like they keep hitting walls and they haven't been making progress. And so for them, would you just help them to be faithful? Would you remind them of the truths of your word that you are faithful and you are at work even when we don't see it? God, for others, would you just give them the courage to open their mouth and speak about you because they already have the opportunity. They already have the influence in their relationship. They just uh, have been reluctant to share. And God, for others, uh, may you give them just that courage to ask one, two, three people just to get together, to push each other, to grow closer to you and to share you with others as well. And so God, wherever we're at, may you help us to be the church together, to be pushing each other to do this church work. And so God, we just ask for your enabling, your empowering in that regard. And we again thank you just for all that you've done in changing our lives. And even as we got to see earlier, uh, people who have made that commitment to uh, follow you and obey you in that act of baptism, uh, displaying for us the gospel as Brent was talking about. May you help us to verbally and through our lives depict that same thing to others. And so, God, we ask all these things in your name. Amen.